Hello, and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 75, Wet Pants and Other Miracles. Otto IV, scion of one of the oldest and most aristocratic families in the world, had achieved what so many of his ancestors had craved, ruling the empire. This week, we'll follow him to his coronation and the sequence of errors that will leave him back home in Brunswick alone and forgotten. At the same time, his nemesis, the child of Pulle, the impoverished 15-year-old king of Sicily and son of Emperor Henry VI, young Frederick II, rises to the imperial crown on a wing in some very potent prayer. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free thanks to the generous support from patrons. You can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Sanjay, Jason and Quitquis who've already signed up. Now last week we saw Philip of Swabia grinding towards ultimate victory against his rival for the imperial title, Otto IV. Otto had run out of money, when his English sponsor, King John Lackland, cut off the flow of subsidies. The endorsement by Pope Innocent III also proved to be worth a lot less than he had hoped for, and finally, he had managed to alienate his two most important allies, his brother Henry, the Count Palatinate on the Rhine, and Archbishop Adolf of Cologne. Otto IV had rejected a last, very generous offer from Philip, and in the spring of 1208, he was readying himself for one last battle, presumably to go down in a blaze of glory. The attitude of Rome was the infallible index of the hopelessness of his cause. Pope Innocent III had withdrawn his support from Otto, he had released Philip from the ban, he had recognized him as king and had offered to crown him emperor should he come down to Rome. But that did not happen. Instead a totally random event took place. King Philip was murdered by Otto von Wittelsbach, a Bavarian count who he had upset by cancelling a marriage alliance. Just to avoid any confusion, this Otto von Wittelsbach is a different Otto von Wittelsbach to the man of the same name who was the greatest paladin and occasional skinny-dipping buddy of Frederick Barbarossa. That Otto, good Otto, was by now dead and his son, Ludwig, was the current Duke of Bavaria. Murderous Otto was a cousin from another branch of the Wittelsbach family. Now, that's probably enough genealogy for this episode, so let's go back to the actual history. With Philip's death, the Hohenstaufen party in Germany simply collapsed. In a terrible twist of fate, the whole of the family had died out without any male descendants. Barbarossa had a stepbrother and eight sons. All of them were now dead. With the exception of Emperor Henry VI, they had all died without producing a male heir. That made 14-year-old Frederick, the son of the superannuated Queen Constance of Sicily and currently residing in Castello Amare in Palermo, the last remaining male Hohenstaufen, or as they would have called themselves, the last of the House of Weiblingen. Without a natural rallying point, the complex alliances that Philip had woven for a decade disappeared overnight. The imperial princes immediately joined Otto IV's camp, and Otto IV, just for safety, 
staged a repeat election in Frankfurt in November 1208, where he was unanimously confirmed as King of the Romans and elected Roman Emperor. Philip's oldest daughter, Beatrice, appeared before the new sovereign and demanded her father's murderers to be caught and brought to justice. Otto granted her this justice, and Heinrich von Calden, one of Philip's most accomplished and most terrifying warriors, was dispatched to hunt down Otto von Wittelsbach. And that he did, cut off his head and threw it in a river. The Duke of Meranien and his brother, the Bishop of Bamberg, were also indicted, but were able to keep their heads and other important limbs, probably because they were actually innocent. This act of respect towards his rival was followed by an even more meaningful political move. Otto IV broke his engagement to Maria of Brabant and instead married his rival's daughter, that same Beatrice. Luckily for him, Marie's father, the Duke of Brabant, was a little less prickly than Otto von Wittelsbach and refrained from cutting the king's throat. Germany pacified, the next natural step is for Otto to head down to Italy. Things have changed a lot since the days of Henry VI. The peace of Constance between the Empire and the Lombard League is no more. The Lombard League has broken down during the struggle for the imperial crown. The old rivalries between Milan and Cremona, and Milan and Pavia, and Pavia and Bergamo, and Bergamo and Brescia, and Parma and Bologna, and Bologna and Forli have returned. No tax had been sent to either king. But the biggest change happened in what we now call the Papal States. The popes, you may remember, had returned to Rome in 1188, after years in exile as guests of the Commune of Verona. That had been achieved through a deal the popes had to strike with the Senate of the Holy City that had by now taken over full temporal control. The lands the papacy laid claim to on the back of the fake donation of Constantine, such as the Campania around Rome, the Mark of Ancona, the Duchy of Spoleto, the area around Ravenna and the Emilia-Romagna, were in the hands of either local lords or communes or imperial vassals. So, for instance, the Duchy of Spoleto was held by Conrad von Urslingen, a Swabian nobleman who had come down to Italy with Henry VI and had received the duchy as his vassal. Spoleto was considered so safe for the imperial party that the Empress Constance left her precious son Frederick with Conrad's family in Foligniano rather than take him down to Sicily, which she conceived to be much more dangerous. When Otto IV comes down ten years later, all of these territories have been seized by the papacy. Pope Innocent III had swept in right after Henry VI's death and had pushed out the imperial administration. He called it the recuperation of the Patrimonium Petri. These lands now formed a wedge straight across the Italian peninsula. South of it was the Kingdom of Sicily, a papal fief ruled by a papal ward, young Frederick, and north was Lombardy, where anti-imperial sentiment was strong at least in parts. A unified Italy under papal control was a distinct possibility. Innocent was only 38 when he was elected Pope in 1198 and in the years since had become the true ruler of Europe. It wasn't just the empire that was riven with discord. In Sicily, various factions fought over the kingdom as child King Frederick looked on. In England, John Lackland had lost Normandy and Anjou to King Philippe Auguste of France and subsequently presided over a much more fragile country than his brother and father. The only really powerful monarch was Philippe Auguste, but he had a major marital issue that forced him to seek papal favour. 
Innocent III used these weaknesses to tighten his reign on the bishops and abbots, to expand the judicial responsibilities of papal legates and to channel more and more of church income to Rome. It's Innocent III who had called the fateful Fourth Crusade the one that went off the rails that it ended up with the Crusaders breaking into Constantinople, sacking the greatest Christian city in the world and installing a Latin emperor and patriarch. Innocent III did see him as the Verum Imperator, the true emperor. His favorite image was that of the sun and the moon. The papacy was the sun and the empress and kings were the moon, who received all their light from the sun temporal power as a mere reflection of the might of the vicar of Christ on earth. And for him, Otto IV was simply a tool. A physically powerful man with modest intellectual capacity seemed an ideal sort of the church. As he needed papal support in his struggle with Philip of Swabia, Otto had given in to all of Innocent's demands. And that included a big step away from the conqueror of Worms, there should be free episcopal elections without any interference from the emperor. There is the recognition of Sicily as a papal fief, assurance that he would never attack Sicily and incorporate it into the empire, the right of the pope to scrutinize any imperial election, including the right to vet the elected king of the Romans, and finally, full recognition of papal right to that wedge of land across the Italian peninsula, the Patrimonium Petri. Otto had promised all this before and he promised it again to gain his all-important coronation. That Innocent III performed on October 4, 1209 in St. Peter is as good and proper. And as usual, there's a bit of brawling and some Romans lay dead. By now, the city of Rome is not a place a holy Roman emperor can stay. Before the coronation, Otto IV had made camp on Monte Mario, outside the city walls, but right after... He retires to a more defensive position in the countryside. And then he does what every self-respecting emperor would do in his position, now that the octagonal crown is safely on his head and the sacred oil had dried. He writes to the Pope and says, well, maybe we should meet up and discuss some of the details of our agreement. Maybe we can talk about the lands of Matilda or the Duchy of Spoleto. I, I just have a few questions and... I'm sorry, I will not be able to meet you in person in Rome because, well, the city is a bit too dangerous for me. So why don't you come up to my camp and then we have a nice chat in my tent. Surprise, surprise, Innocent III shows no interest to sit down in a tent surrounded by 6,000 armored men. He suggests conducting negotiations via envoys. Negotiations begin whilst Otto IV wanders around Tuscany and Spoleto, issuing charters for local lords, monasteries and bishops, as if it was his fief. In March 1210, he's in Ravenna and Ferrara, slap-bang in the Patrimonium Petri, still acting as if he owns the place. Innocent III is getting nervous. When's this guy going back home? What is he up to? Sure, bit of imperial play-acting is okay, as long as it does not take it too seriously. But this is dragging on a bit. Otto brings about a peace agreement between Genova and Pisa, making another set of alarm bells ring. Meanwhile, in southern Italy, the barons on the mainland in Apulia and Calabria are stirring. There's talk of getting rid of young Frederick and bringing in Otto IV. Some of these barons were Germans who had come down with Henry VI and they firmly believed that the kingdom of Sicily should be part of the empire. Whilst the now emperor Otto IV stays in Pisa, 
the rebellious Sicilian barons seek him out and invite him to take the kingdom. The Pisans promise to help and provide shipping to cross over to the island. What goes on in Otto's mind we will never know, but it may have gone along the following lines. Pope Innocent III may appear all-powerful, but quite frankly, his excommunication of Philip had little to no effect. So, if he, Otto, goes to Sicily and the Pope goes ballistic, this might not be such a big deal. On the other hand, the last of the Hohenstaufen sits in his palace in Palermo. Yes, he's still a boy. His grasp of power in Sicily is weak. But he had once been the elected king of the Romans, and he could still be a challenge. Better to stamp out this viper before it comes to bite you. A man of modest intellect? Well, let us see. Whilst Otto makes preparations for a trip down south, Innocent III makes his preparations to bring down his former champion. First, he writes a letter to the German bishops. Not yet excommunicating Otto IV, but he lets the bishops know that they are all automatically released from any oath of fealty to the emperor once he formally excommunicates him. Though this is not yet a call of action, the bishops understood right away. Off they went, talking to the Landgrafs, Markgrafs, Dukes and other imperial princes, seeding sedition. The next one on Innocent's Christmas card list is King Philip Auguste of France, and there Innocent resorts to rather uncharacteristic groveling. He regrets he had not seen through the duplicitous nature of the wealth, something the wise king had so easily done. And then he skillfully wove into the letter a few remarks that Otto had made. For instance, that he could not sleep as long as the King of France still occupied lands that rightfully belonged to his beloved uncle, King John of England. Again, no call to action, just subtle encouragement to get in touch with the German princes. In the autumn of 1210, the conflict breaks out into the open. Otto had by now recruited a sizable army from German and Lombard allies and began his march down south. The southern Italian rebels joined him at the border of Apulia. Now as soon as Otto's army sets out on its quest, the Pope issued the formal excommunication and the carefully set machinery of rebellion in Germany was put into forward gear. Otto, at this point, still does not care that much. Hostilities resume in the spring of 1211 and Otto cuts through the resistance of the boy king of Sicily like through butter. By the summer, He's near the Straits of Messina that separates Sicily and the mainland, waiting for the Pisan fleet that is supposed to take him across. Frederick's position is utterly hopeless. His hold on the Sicilian kingdom had always been tenuous, but now it is slipping out of his hands. Almost all the feudal lords were siding with the emperor. The still sizable Muslim population in central Sicily declares for Otto. His kingdom has shrunk to no more than the royal palaces of Palermo. A galley is standing ready to take Frederick across to Africa, should the inevitable take place. And that is when the first, and by some counting, the second miracle of Frederick's life occurs. The first miracle was, of course, his actual existence, born as he was from a superannuated and perennially barren mother. Just as Otto is about to embark on the last leg of his conquests, messengers, some from Germany, others from his allied city of Milan, tell him, the imperial princes are meeting, and revolt is in the air. They tell him to return as fast as he can and to nip it in the bud. 
That same night, Otto dreams of a bear cub joining him in the imperial bed. The bear grew and grew until it had become the largest and the mightiest bear ever seen. A bear that took up so much space it pushed him, Otto, off his couch. Otto IV was shaken to the marrow and terrified of losing his hard-won imperial crown, abandons his prey. The long-legged whelf strikes camp and runs, runs as if that bear he had dreamt of was chasing him back across the Alps. As so often in history, one man's miracle is just another man's panic. If Otto had thought about his dream calmly and rationally, he should have pushed forward and killed the bear cub before it grows. Sicily and his potential rival for the imperial crown were right in his grasp. Capturing him would have brought the whole rebellion come crushing down. But he didn't. Frederick was saved. And more than that, just as the imperial army vanished in a cloud of dust, an envoy from Germany, Anselm von Justingen, arrived in Palermo. He bore the news that the German princes had met in September in Nuremberg, had deposed Otto IV and elected none other than him, young Frederick, last of the House of Weiblingen, to become King of the Romans. Within just days, Frederick had turned from being a near-refugee in Africa to be elected Emperor of the Romans and leader of Christianity. The title, grand as it was, was still theoretical, though. To make it real, he needed to be crowned, crowned by, as we know, the Archbishop of Cologne in Aachen, with a true imperial regalia. To get there, he will have to travel 2,300 kilometers. He will need to find allies along the way, as Otto's friends will try to stop him. The notoriously treacherous German princes must still be on side when he gets there for the plan to work out. And he is a 17-year-old, who'd never been to Germany, does not speak the language, does not know the ins and outs of the fiendishly complicated political landscape of the empire. No wonder his counsel strongly discourages him to go. His wife, Constance of Aragon, who had just borne him his first son, objects even more vehemently. How is she supposed to keep Sicily together on the baby's behalf when Frederick himself could barely keep it going? What happens if the Pope changes his mind about making a king of Sicily emperor, bringing back that dreaded encirclement of the papacy? As they debated, news arrived from Germany, and some of the princes who in September had elected Frederick were now coming back to Otto, no doubt lured by some juicy bribe. Another reason to stay. In reality, Frederick did not have a choice. The events of last years had shown that if a powerful emperor, be it Otto or anyone else, comes down to Sicily, his kingdom would fall. He needed to become emperor as a forward defense position to protect Sicily, probably the most extended forward defense position in European history. He would later claim that he went because his elevation was the sign of God that he, the last descendant of the great emperors of old, had survived. He writes an acceptance letter to the German princes as follows. Since no other could be found who could have accepted the proffered dignity in opposition to us and to our right, and since the princes have summoned us and since from their own choice the crown is ours. Frederick sets off on his grand adventure in the middle of March 1212. Upon request of the Pope, he had his son, Heinrich, crowned king before his departure. Progress stalled already in Gaeta, south of Rome, as a Pisan fleet is lying in wait for him. After a month, he finally manages to proceed to Rome, where he meets for the first 
and the only time, his guardian, the Pope Innocent III. He swears fealty to him for the Sicilian kingdom and, as Otto IV before, makes all the assurances the papacy could possibly demand. Innocent covers the cost of the impecunious monarch's stay in the holy city and gives him the funds to continue his journey. The Genoese, perennial rivals of the Pisans, are happy to take the boy further north to Lombardy. With just a few friends and a Genoese escort, he follows a circuitous route to Pavia, avoiding the cities and castles held by Otto's allies. The eternally loyal city of Pavia is prepared to take the last of the Ghibellines further on his journey. The next stage post is Cremona, and that means crossing the hostile territory of Piacenza and Milan. As Frederick moved east, news of his movements reached his Lombard enemies. The Milanese readied their mighty Carioccio and sent it down to the river Lambro, where the spies have told them that the Pavese are planning to hand the boy king over to the men of Cremona. Piacenza, meanwhile, searched all the ships going up the Po River, expecting to find Frederick hiding amongst the sacks of wheat or bales of cloth. The Pavese set out in the middle of the night, taking their host as quietly and as safely as possible the 25 kilometers to the river crossing. Meanwhile, the Cremonese head out for that same spot. And as dawn breaks the two contingents rendezvous as planned. They sit down for a well-earned farewell breakfast, the banners of Milan appear on the horizon. In a split-second decision, Frederick, wearing no more than his pants and his shirt, jumps on a horse and rides bareback across the river into the waiting arms of the Cremonese, whilst behind him the faithful Pavese are being slaughtered. That Frederick saw as miracle number three, whilst the Milanese still recount for decades about how they got the emperor's pants wet. From here, there is no stopping him. From Cremona he goes to Mantua, then Verona. He tries to get across the Brenner Pass, but that is barred by Otto's allies. So he goes on small mountain paths across bleak landscapes into the Engadine. In early September he is in Chur. The Bishop of Chur itself, part of Frederick's ancestral Duchy of Swabia, accompanies him to St. Gallen, where the abbot of this great monastery joins him too. Along this route, Frederick may have witnessed one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the entire Middle Ages, the so-called Children's Crusade. At Easter 1212 in Cologne, a young man, Nicholas, declared an angel had appeared to him and foretold him that if he led an army of innocent south, he would be able to free Jerusalem from the Saracens. The Lord would part the sea and they could get to Palestine on foot. Thousands of mostly adolescent and young adults joined this effort. They set off from Cologne and got to the Brenner via Trier and Speyer. By the time they had reached Lombardy, most had already died or given up. They reached Genoa via Cremona in August 1212. And there, surprise, surprise, the sea did not part. At that point, most were too exhausted, hungry and poor to continue. Very few returned home, some settling in Italy and some were sold into slavery. For Frederick, travelling the opposite direction, the next destination is Constance, a bishopric in Swabia and crucial to his claim on Philip's old power base. Otto IV, meanwhile, had consolidated his position and had come down to Lake Constance to intercept his rival. Otto camped in Überlingen, a mere 12 kilometers from the episcopal seat. The emperor had negotiated his entry into Constance with the bishop and great festivities were being prepared. 
His servants were in town laying the tables, and his cooks were putting the huge roast into the even bigger ovens, when Frederick and his merry band appeared before the gates of the city. The bishop was made to come to the battlements and parley with the young contender. Frederick demanded entry as Duke of Swabia and as elected King of the Romans. The Archbishop Barat of Bari, one of Frederick's closest advisers, and also the papal legate, pushed hard on Otto IV being excommunicated and deposed by order of both the princes and the Pope. After some back and forth, the bishop relented. Frederick entered the city. Otto was kept out and, lacking a full army, retreated. Frederick and his men ate all the delicious food and celebrated that the Hohenstaufen were back. Had he been three hours later, Otto IV would have been inside Constance and the journey of the young king of Sicily would have ended right there. That was miracle number four. Frederick's support quickly grew as he progressed to Basel and then further to Alsace. Like his uncle, the support did not come cheap. Ottokar of Bohemia came and swore allegiance on condition that he would be confirmed, now for the third time, in his royal title. This time he got even more than just a personal royal title. In a splendid golden bull, Ottokar was granted an inheritable Bohemian kingdom, as well as free investiture of his bishops, relief from serving in imperial campaigns and some generous fiefs from the Hohenstaufen lands. This document was produced by a Sicilian notary and the seal attached was the royal seal of Sicily. Best guess, neither the young elected emperor of the Romans nor his notary had the faintest idea where Bohemia was and what he had just handed over. Word of Frederick's generosity spread rapidly and the usual turncoats swelled the ranks of the Hohenstaufen loyalists. Our old friend and most unreliable ally, Hermann Landgraf of Thuringia, popped up in the Ghibelline tent. The Dukes of Lothringia, Zeringen and Bavaria joined, as did the Archbishop of Mainz, who after all had been put on his episcopal seat by Otto IV himself, but now saw more value in the young Stauffer prince. All of them would benefit, but none more than the Duke of Bavaria, who would gain the Palatinate when Otto's brother Henry died without an heir. The Palatinate and Bavaria would remain in the Wittelsbach family until 1918. King Philip Auguste, who had pulled the strings in the background, sent the elected emperor a generous donation of 20,000 mark of silver. When the French envoys asked where to deposit this huge sum, Frederick said, What do you mean? All this money goes straight out to my supporters. No surprise, he was popular. People started calling him the Puer Apulier, the child of Puglia the young and innocent man, a true knight, a descendant of emperors, set against the gruff, battle-hardened Otto IV. In November 1212, the princes elected him King of the Romans, now for the third time. Four days later, he was crowned king, but not in the right place, but in the Cathedral of Mainz, and not by the right archbishop, but by the Archbishop of Mainz again, and with fake imperial regalia. We know what that means. It means... The war isn't over yet. We're quickly reverting to the political situation of 1198 to 1208. Frederick holds southern Germany with his centers of power in the Hohenstaufen lands. Otto IV holds his family estates in Saxony and has allies in the Lower Rhine. But his most important ally is the King of England, John Lackland. King John had lost the heart of the Angevin Empire, Normandy and Anjou. 
the following ten years, John has spent gathering money and weapons with the single aim to get it back. And part of his plan was relying on the support of Otto IV. When he rekindled that alliance, Otto IV had been the undisputed ruler of the empire, and hence a hugely important ally. Had Frederick never been born, had he been routed in Sicily in 1211, had he drowned in the river Lambro, or missed the entrance into Constance by three hours, English history would have taken a very different turn. Because now, Otto IV could not provide anywhere near the kind of help John Lackland had hoped for. At the beginning of 1214, John Lackland thought he was ready. He could no longer wait for his ally to succeed in Germany. The great campaign against Philippe Auguste of France had to begin. At its heart was a two-pronged approach. King John was to attack from the southwest, luring Philippe Auguste away from the Capetian heartlands around Paris. Otto should then lead a combined force of Saxon, Brabant, Flanders and English forces in from the northeast, take the Ile de France and cut the French king off from supplies. On paper, a very sound plan. And John landed in La Rochelle, but his campaign ended quickly and rather embarrassingly. Philippe Auguste sent him back onto his boats and turned round to face the other invading army in the north. That was certainly a setback for the Anglo-Welf alliance, but it was partially offset by Frederick's failure to distract Otto IV on the Lower Rhine. All now depended on the outcome in the northeast. The two armies met at the bridge of Bouvines between Lille and Tournai. Georges Duby estimated that Philip's army consisted of about 1,300 knights, the same number of mounted fighters and 6,000 foot soldiers. Otto's army was larger, not by a wide margin, but somewhat larger. Philip's army, comprised predominantly of men from his personal domains on the Ile de France, the Artois and the Picardie. Otto's forces were in part English, but in the majority from Saxony, Flanders, Brabant and Holland. Philip lined his army up in the traditional French manner. In the middle were the armed infantrymen with the cavalry on either side. Behind the infantry stood the king himself, with his household knights and the reserve cavalry. Above the king flew the Oriflamme, the blood-red sacred war banner shot through with golden stars, confirming the presence of Saint-Denis, patron saint of the French monarchy. Otto's army was mirroring the French side. On the left flank the knights from Flanders and Germany, on the right flank the English knights under William of Salisbury, called the Longsword, the half-brother of King John. Otto IV took the centre, with his Saxon knights and the foot soldiers lined up before him. Otto IV had also brought a highly symbolic battle standard, not the holy lance as it had been wielded by the Ottonians, but a golden imperial eagle, raised on a staff that symbolized the honor imperii, the honor of the empire. And below flew the Anglo-Norman silk dragon, symbolizing the unity of Normandy, the dark dragon, and the white and red dragons of Britain. With two monarchs on the battlefield, the key objective on either side was to capture the leader of the other, and his battle standard. Otto made the first move and sent his experienced and numerically superior foot soldiers into the French centre. This move nearly decided the battle very early on. The lightly armoured man got all the way to King Philippe Auguste and pulled him off his horse and started hacking at his armour, looking for the weakness that the daggers could penetrate. Only by a hair's breadth did his bodyguard get him out. That gave the French side new momentum. They pushed back the Imperial Infantry and started moving towards the Golden Eagle. 
Otto IV and his Saxon knights pushed back, and finally fighting began between the knights, whilst his simple soldiers were trampled under the horses' hoofs, as it was customary. A French knight, Gérard de Trouy, got close enough to drive his dagger into Otto's chest armour. The armour deflected the blow, but on the second attempt, Gérard hit the emperor's horse in the eye. The horse rose up in pain and Otto fell to the ground. Otto was pulled out of the melee and mounted a fresh horse. Another French knight, Walter de Bar, grabbed him by the neck twice, but failed to take the emperor down. But at that point, Otto IV lost his nerve and fled. The leader gone, the bulk of the army surrendered. Only the Count of Boulogne and his 700 mercenaries from Brabant, the much-feared Brabanzones, held out until almost all of them lay dead. This was not a miracle, just a medieval battle. But this battle decided so much of European history. The Angevin Empire shrunk to just Aquitaine. The Capetian kings began calling themselves the kings of France, no longer just the king of the Franks as they had been before, because now they did have possession of northern and central France. King John Lackland returned to England empty-handed after having squeezed the last dime out of his lands in the hope of regaining the riches of France. His barons could not take it any longer and forced him to sign a list of concessions, the document we now know as Magna Carta. And as Fort of the Fourth, his imperial dream had collapsed. He would hold out in Brunswick until 1218, friendless and largely forgotten. After his truly gruesome death, his nephew Otto the Child would be raised to be Duke of Brunswick and the House of Wealth would recede from the global stage, until on August 1, 1714, a certain George, Duke of Brunswick-Lüneburg and Elector of Hanover, ascended the English throne, where his family still reigns. Frederick II was the other great winner of the battle, without having shot a single arrow. He was finally crowned, properly, in Aachen, the right place, by the right archbishop, the Archbishop of Cologne, and with the real imperial regalia, all that in 1215. And as we know, once that has happened, the civil war is usually over. Next week we'll go back in time and talk about Frederick II's early years, his mindset and outlook, and the role of his guardian, Pope Innocent III. I hope you'll join us again. Before I go, let me thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have so kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It is thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for mattresses, or as I recently heard, energy supplements and pension plans. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help the show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others and bring in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>